0: James Risen's latest book is about what he says was the last honest man. The man he's talking about is Frank Church, former senator from Idaho, a Democrat. In the prologue, he writes, when the Church Committee began to investigate the CIA, the FBI, NSA, and other agencies, it marked for the first time there had ever been any serious congressional inquiry into the national security state. The year, 1975, 48 years ago, James Risen is a former New York Times reporter and lives in Washington, D.C. James Risen, who is the last honest man, in your opinion?
1: Uh, Senator Frank Church, a uh, Democrat of Idaho who uh, ran the uh, Church Committee. It's what he's uh, most famous for. Uh, in the 1970s, it was the first investigation of the CIA and the FBI. And the NSA, and it uh, changed the whole nature uh, of the U.S. intelligence community, and it brought the CIA under the rule of law for the first time. What was he like? He was a very interesting, complicated, flawed figure who was, I think, basically uh, had a lot of honesty and integrity. He was a uh, a man, he grew up in Boise, Idaho, uh, and was a unique figure from uh, his childhood. He was always the smartest kid in class. He was really an urban uh, literate kid in the middle of the Mountain West. And so one you might think he would have been a loner, but in fact he was probably the most popular uh, young uh, kid in, in uh, his school's and so he was an interesting mix. He was highly intellectual, uh, but also very political and very uh, affable. And uh, people both respected and liked him as a, as a child and as a young man. And so I think all of those uh, characteristics played through into his political career.
0: How long was he in the Senate?
1: He was elected for the first time in 1956. Uh, and he uh, was finally defeated in 1980. So uh, I guess that's 24 years, four terms in the Senate.
0: How do you judge him honest?
1: I think he, uh, unlike many politicians, he stuck to uh, what he his his firm intellectual and ideological uh, roots. He became uh, he was always liberal, but he was deeply radicalized by the Vietnam War. And he believed that it was uh, his mission to try to rein in the power of the intelligence community and uh, the imperial ambitions of presidents to try to keep the United States as a republic. And I think he was uh, kind of an American
0: Cicero. As you write in your book there's the cia the nsa the fbi uh the national director of intelligence uh, the defense intelligence agency what define those places like the cia how big is it mm-hmm. how many i mean i've got a list here of how many people work there but right wh- where is it and you know it's always had this secret uh, look to it. right? What is it? What's it do?
1: Well, the CIA was created in 1947 by the National Security Act um, at the same time that the Air Force was created as a separate service. And it was created in, in the wake of, the, of World War II and uh, it was a response to the intelligence failures after Pearl Harbor um, in, or of Pearl Harbor in which uh, the U.S. believed that they had had intelligence that could have been used to prevent, to uh, alert the American military to Pearl Harbor, but hadn't been brought together, hadn't been analyzed and collected. And so originally the CIA was supposed to be a civilian central place in which all intelligence was collected and then analyzed, but it very quickly morphed into something bigger and more powerful, and a lot of people thought was more dangerous. And that was, it developed in the 1950s, in particular under President Dwight Eisenhower, a major covert action arm. And so it became, in addition to its traditional role of uh, analyzing and collecting intelligence, it became a secret uh, weapon for presidents to use to Stage coups around the world and to uh, conduct sabotage and uh, uh, operations against uh, adversaries. And so it grew very rapidly into having two basic, uh, sometimes conflicting missions. One was to gather intelligence, and the other was to conduct covert action. And um, those, once those two missions kind of grew in parallel. The agency grew far beyond what it was originally uh, thought to have uh, be intended for. So it became, by the 1970s, um, a very large organization that had no congressional oversight whatsoever. And so the church committee, Frank Church's uh, famous committee, was created largely because there was no oversight by Congress. It had not Originally, uh, Congress had not originally created any intelligence committees uh, to oversee it. And and, uh, prior to the church committee, the only oversight that Congress did was occasionally very powerful barons in the Senate and the House would talk to uh, the CIA director uh, in private. And that was that was the extent of the oversight.
0: How long were the hearings?
1: Uh, Well, the Church Committee lasted a little over a year. Uh, It started in January 1975 and continued into early 1976. The public, they had a whole series of closed hearings uh, beginning in the spring and summer of 1975. And then they held uh, public hearings beginning in September 1975 and going
0: through December 1975. We've done some video on it on our main C-SPAN television network, and I what I see is Frank Church as a chairman sitting next to him on his left, John Tower, right. and on his right, a man named F.A.O. Schwartz right. Jr., Right, who was he?
1: Uh, it was uh, F.A.O. Schwartz, uh, also known as Fritz, uh, was the chief counsel of the church committee. Um, he was a New York litigator. He he was the heir to the F.A.O. Schwartz Toy Store Company. Um, But as he told me, uh, he and his brother, neither he or his brother wanted to take over the toy store company. And so their father uh, had sold it. And he was, uh, by that time, a very uh, powerful, well-known and well-respected New York litigator. Uh, and he had been brought in by Frank Church to be the chief counsel of the church committee. He had never worked in Washington before, and um, he had been attracted by Watergate uh, to try to uh, you know, take on another major investigation right after Watergate. Um, one of the interesting things was that at the same time, Church hired um Uh, Fritz Schwartz, he also hired a staff director named Bill Miller, who was a Washington, old Washington hand, who had been in the State Department and in the Senate and had a real uh, uh, Washington insider approach to things. And uh, the two, Miller and Schwartz, very quickly clashed. Uh, Miller did not want to conduct a uh, aggressive investigation of the CIA. He thought that the church committee should just do interviews of uh, leading intelligence officials and do kind of a lessons learned type approach to to reforming the intelligence community, whereas Schwartz was very much uh, believed that there needed to be a major investigation of all the abuses that had taken place over the previous thirty years. and there, uh, the feud between the two got so bad that Church had to step in, and he sided with uh, Fritz Schwartz and uh, decided to make the committee a much more uh, aggressive investigation.
0: Democrats control the Senate. Mike Mansfield was a majority leader, and you talk about the fact that Philip Hart, which is one of the three office buildings on Capitol Hill for the Senate is na- it's named after from Michigan that Mike Mansfield wanted him to be chairman. Right, explain that and why did he in- end up with Church?
1: Uh, uh, Senator Mike Mansfield, as you said, was Senate Majority Leader from Montana, a Democrat who had uh, he'd been wanting to investigate and uh, conduct oversight of the CIA for many years. Beginning in the nineteen fifties, he had introduced a whole series of measures in the senate uh to try to create a senate a senate intelligence oversight committee of some kind and he kept getting defeated both uh, the cia the white house and the powerful uh allies of the cia and the senate kept defeating him uh and uh so prior to 1975 when the church committee was formed uh the only oversight was conducted as i said earlier by uh senior members the basically the chairman of uh the defense or the armed services or defense appropriations type uh the old barons mostly southern uh, democrats and they never really conducted any real oversight and mansfield was very uh frustrated by that because he he thought that the cia was growing so rapidly that it needed oversight And so he had been looking. He had been trying to do get get a Senate committee formed for decades, and he finally had a chance because in the mid in the midterm elections of 1974, after Watergate, the Democrats had a landslide victory. Uh, They had sixty majority of sixty in the Senate, and I think two hundred and ninety some in the House. And um, they had enormous majorities. They could uh, pass legislation. And and there were many more liberals in the Senate by that time than there had been before. And so he, that all created a condition that was then triggered by a major uh, uh, scoop in the New York Times in December 1974 when Cy Hirsch of the New York Times broke a huge story about – the CIA's domestic spying scan, uh, scandal. He found he uncovered the fact that the CIA had been uh, conducting Ill- illegal spying on uh, anti-war dissidents during the Vietnam War and that thousands of people had been spied on by the CIA. And that story triggered a huge firestorm and calls for congressional investigation. And Mansfield uh, took that as the final the the final opportunity to create a cia committee as he called it and he wanted someone who uh was widely respected in the senate by both democrats and republicans and he immediately thought of phil hart hart was his nickname was the conscience of the senate he was both a liberal but also widely respected by southern um uh, segregationists um and his, some of his best friends in the Senate were uh, were old line uh, Senate Southern Democrats, and uh, so um, Mansfield offered Hart the job of chairman of the news committee, and Hart had to tell him that he had just been diagnosed with cancer, and so he um, and it was possibly terminal, and so he'd uh, told him he couldn't do it, but he said, "I think Phil, uh, I think Frank Church." Um, would be good and I know that he wants it and um, at the to- at that time church was already starting to lobby other senators to get the job and uh, lobby Mansfield what's the story of Richard Wa- Welsh uh, w- Richard Welch was the uh, CIA station chief in Athens um, in uh, 1975 and um, in December 1975, kind of towards uh, the end of the Church Committee's investigation of the CIA, uh, he was assassinated um, in Athens on his way home from a Christmas party at the uh, U.S. ambassador's uh, home in uh, in a residence in uh, Athens. And when his assassination took place, the Ford administration and the CIA kind of used uh, used it to try to uh, claim that the church committee was responsible by having um, made too many disclosures of CIA secrets. And it was a, a lie, really, that um, was allowed to continue unchallenged for decades— uh, and in my book, I found that um, I talked to the deputy station chief, who was the number two guy in the in the station at the time. And he told me that it was obvious that the leak of Welch's identity and his where he lived, which was had come out right before his assassination in the Greek press, was from the KYP, the Greek intelligence service because the only names that had been released were those that the KYP knew in the CIA station. And so that fact was covered up at the time by both the CIA and the Ford White House because they wanted to use Welch's murder uh, against Frank Church and the Church Committee uh, to try to discredit uh, congressional oversight and... um, Investigations of
0: the CIA. You point out that when he was flown back to the United States in, in a cargo jet, American plane, that you say that he the plane circled the, over the airport until seven a.m. And right. what was the reason for that?
1: The yeah, he was he was brought back to Washington. He was uh, he was not in the military. He had not, never served in the military. But the uh, President Ford gave a waiver for him to be buried at Arlington national cemetery because they wanted a big ceremony. Uh, and when his, uh, plane came back to Andrews, they, they were ordered to circle and wait to land it till 7. AM so that the landing could appear on the morning television news shows like the today show and CBS morning news. And, um, I found that in a journal that uh, Daniel Shore had kept, where he described being told that by the by the PR people for the White House who were there, and it was, <laughs> he said it was, uh, it it worked because they did show the landing on CBS Morning News that day.
0: You you did bring up Dan Shore more than once and Leslie yeah. Stahl, right? What's the story of those two?
1: <laughs> it's one of the more humorous stories that I didn't know, but. It, uh, there's a long, um, uh, as you know, that there was, you know, television news can be kind of a snake pit <laughs> as anybody who's uh, watched uh, broadcast news or anything like that. Uh, and in the 1975, Dan Shore and Leslie Stahl were both in the Washington Bureau of CBS News. And Shore was covering the church committee and the CIA and uh The Pike Committee, which was the House uh, counterpart to the Church Committee, and the Pike Committee um, was not really as successful as the Church Committee because they kept having so many uh, confrontations with the Ford White House and the the, um, uh, CIA that they weren't getting much cooperation and they weren't getting any information uh, compared to the Church Committee. And then the House, after Welch's murder, the, the rest of the House turned against the Pike Committee uh, because, the, as I said, the, the Ford White House and the CIA were using the Welch murder so successfully against congressional investigations. In any event, the House uh, voted not to release the Pike Committee's final report of its investigation Uh, and that was devastating to the Pike committee to Otis Pike who was the house the chairman of the committee Uh, he was a New York congressman Uh, and then because there was so much frustration of not having their report released uh, it was leaked to the press and Daniel Shore was uh, the first first reporter to get a copy of the report and he Wanted. He he did some um, broadcast stories for CBS about the Pike Committee report, but then he felt very frustrated that CBS wasn't didn't want to do a big a, make a bigger uh, deal of it, and he wanted to do like a special about the uh, this Pike Committee report, which he had exclusively, and he got so frustrated that he leaked it to the Village Voice magazine. And uh, secretly, without telling CBS, and so the Village Voice very quickly printed the whole report, and um, which is a report, by the way, that which has still never been published by the House of Representatives. Uh, And CBS got furious because they figured uh, that Shore must have leaked it to the Village Voice, but so when he was confronted. By CBS executives, he realized that his contract was in danger because he had violated his, his CBS contract by doing this. And he had, a, a very, in a very cowardly way, blamed it on Leslie Stahl and said that she must have taken it off of his desk and given it to the Village Voice. Uh, and he argued that, you know, her then boyfriend later husband worked at the village voice and so that was his his thinking why he picked her uh as the person to uh to blame this on uh and uh they were ready to fire leslie stall and she worked had to scramble and luckily for her the washington post quickly reported that it was daniel shore who had leaked it and he was um gotten a lot of hot water. Eventually he left CBS. and um, But it was a very ugly episode. And I interviewed, um, he's now passed away, but I interviewed Leslie Stahl and she's still mad about it.
0: And still on 60 Minutes after yeah, all these years. right, right. What's the Frank Olson story?
1: Oh, wow. Uh, that is one of the most complicated, ugly stories of the CIA's history. Um, and it's one of the things that was a central part of the investigation of um, the church committee. Frank Olson was a an army scientist who uh, was working at Fort Detrick in Frederick, Maryland. And at the time, the this is in the 50s, the 1950s. Uh, and at the time, the army and the CIA were both working on a strange... Uh, programs to try to develop mind control drugs and it was known the main program was known as MK Ultra and um, Frank Olson uh, was deeply involved in the program but he was also expressing a lot of doubts about the program and he went with some other scientists Army and CIA scientists to a retreat at Deep Creek Lake in Maryland Uh, with uh, some other uh, CIA officials. And the CIA, while he was uh, at this retreat, they uh, secretly dosed him with LSD, uh, which was the drug of choice of MKUltra, which the CIA was trying to prove that LSD could be used as a mind-control drug. And they also dosed some of the other participants in the retreat without telling them but Olson left uh, went home to Frederick and was uh, going through it uh, I guess you have to call it psychotic episodes as a result of uh, the LSD and he didn't know what was happening to him and he went to see the leaders of the MK Ultra program and they were so freaked out by it they flew him to New York to meet with this uh doctor who wasn't really uh, uh, qualified to help but who was in on the MKUltra secret program and after a day or so of kind of shuttling him back and forth they took him to a hotel in New York and that night he jumped out of the window and killed himself Um, at least that the CIA said he killed himself Um, it's still never been resolved whether he was murdered, or was, or it was suicide, uh, and the the CIA covered up what happened to him uh, until not, from the fifties until nineteen seventy five, at the time of the Church Committee, uh, and um, his family was only told what the truth was uh, in nineteen seventy five, and they met with uh, President Ford, who offered an apology and. Um, but their the family and his son, is, uh, who I interviewed at length, was is still believes he was murdered by the CIA to keep him quiet about MK Ultra.
0: As you know, you have quite a history of your own in this yeah. town. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how long did you work for the New York Times? Uh, twenty years. When did you leave them?
1: The end of uh, twenty seventeen.
0: What are you doing now?
1: Uh, Well, I write books, and I also uh, work for The Intercept as a a national security correspondent. What is The Intercept? It's an online news organization, um, and it's – so I I do that. And uh, I'm also starting to um, teach at the University of Maryland uh, Journalism School.
0: What's um – What's your reaction to the CIA's current image? <laughs> well, I think it's, it's, um, one
1: of the things that people now, the people on the the right, the conservative half of the country has done really an about face in how they think about the U S intelligence community, both the CIA and the FBI and everything. Um, for, at the time of the Church Committee, for instance, they hated the Church Committee's investigations of the CIA and the FBI. Why? Uh, they thought that they were... The Church Committee was divulging too many secrets, that they were uh, dangerous people who were reckless with uh, secrets. They, that they didn't think Congress had the right to oversee the intelligence community. Uh, then after... The church committee found so many abuses that that led to reforms of the intelligence community and to new laws were put in place to rein in the power of the intelligence community. And then after 9-11, the Bush and Cheney White House attacked the church committee that had taken place, you know, uh, nearly 30 years earlier, arguing that they were respond that the Church Committee was responsible for 9/11 because they had reined in the intelligence community too much, that they would imposed l- rules and laws that limited the ability of the Church Committee of the CIA to find terrorists. That was Dick Cheney's uh, uh, complaint, which he voiced many times after 9/11. Today, the exact opposite position is taking place in the Republican Party where they think that the CIA and the FBI are now part of a woke deep state and they want a new church committee to come in and investigate what they call uh, a, an, a a deep state that persecutes conservatives. Um, and this is all based on Donald Trump's complaints about uh being uh persecuted by the government. So it's a it's a real roundabout reversal.
0: Uh, I still didn't get from you what you think of the CIA.
1: Oh, what I think of the CIA today. I think that the the CIA in the years between the Church Committee and 9/11 had be, had been reigned in uh, to a degree that in which, and it was focused primarily on, I think, on intelligence and an espionage kind of classic espionage. I think after nine eleven, it became more of a paramilitary organization and more of a targeted killing organization, and I think that became more dangerous for a, a democratic society to have an organization focused on uh, so exclusively on counterterrorism, uh, that it became uh, a very powerful weapon that could use surveillance and uh, other technologies to kill people anywhere in the world. And that's a power that it still has that's very, I think, is very dangerous. And it, it makes it, I think, uh, a weapon that we have to think about what are the powers of a president to control that.
0: I went to the website today before we sat down to talk and looked up some numbers. I don't particularly trust these numbers because I wasn't able to spend a lot of time on them, but I'll give you what the numbers are and get your reaction. Mm-hmm. The CIA has 21,000 people working for it. The NSA has 32,000. Mm-hmm. The Defense Intelligence Agency, sixteen five, mm-hmm. And the FBI, 37,000. Mm-hmm. And the total budget, that's 100, roughly 108000 when you include the uh, uh, National Defense Intelligence Office. Mm-hmm. The total budget, according to what I could find, it was close to $90 billion. Does mm-hmm. any of that make sense to you? Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah, that's about right. Do we need that kind of money in intelligence? And <laughs> we've seen so many... Things that have failed over the years, including MD weapons of mass destruction and a lot of other things. Right. Uh, What are we getting for our money?
1: Oh man, that's a great question. I spent a long time working on that uh, as a reporter. I think that, uh, like any institution, uh, you know, the CIA and the intelligence community do some good things. It really depends on the on the political climate. And I think today, as I said, I think the danger is that we've created something new that we've not really debated very carefully. The power of the counter, uh, the in institutions we created in the war on terror, are still there, and they are immense. Have immense power. The NSA, the CIA, and the laws we created, the Patriot Act, and all the other laws that have been uh, passed, are still there, uh, and I worry about the power of that uh, national security apparatus if it was in the wrong hands of the wrong kind of president um, and i I worried frankly uh, while Trump was president about but I think he was never smart enough to figure out how to use it uh, thankfully and um, I think that. If someone like, like him gets back into office, I think it would be very dangerous because it has enormous power. I don't – you know, I think they you can criticize – I think we should criticize the power and the growth of the intelligence community. My problem with what the Republicans are saying now is that it's very wrongheaded and it's a very – it's a conspiratorial view of it. They think that the intelligence community is this woke institution – is going after uh, conservatives it's it's actually the exact opposite. It's an incredibly conservative uh, set of institutions filled with very conservative people who have enormous uh, technological prowess and um, that doesn't make it more less dangerous i I like to talk about how, when Republicans say there is a deep state, I think there is not a deep state. The deep state was, I believe, stopped, the creation of a deep state was stopped by the church committee because it forced for the first time the intelligence community to be brought under the rule of law. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a military-industrial complex, That Dwight, the kind that Dwight Eisenhower... Warned us about. We do have this enormous complex of defense contractors, intelligence contractors, homeland security contractors, and agencies that um, have their own iner- you know their own uh, momentum and their own inertia that can force us into certain policy decisions and policy choices. Uh, and that's what Eisenhower was worried about, and I think it's still something we have to worry about.
0: The Popular liberal politician, now deceased, of course, was assassinated. Robert Kennedy, yeah, was the one that ordered the wiretapping. <clears throat> excuse me, of um, Martin Luther King. What's right. your reaction to that? Well, I, I talk
1: about that in the the book. The Church Committee was the first uh, conducted the first investigation of the FBI's harassment and uh, spying on Martin Luther King, and it was. Pretty much what we now know about uh, King, uh, what the FBI did to King, is known because of the church committee. And what they found was that J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, hated Martin Luther King. He had this racist view of the civil rights movement. He thought it was controlled by the communists. And he wanted to prove that Martin Luther King was a puppet of Moscow. Um, And the Kennedy's, uh, John Kennedy, President John Kennedy and his brother, Bobby Kennedy, who was attorney general in the early 1960s, uh, were came under pressure from Hoover when Hoover found that the Kennedy's had allowed the CIA to work with the mafia to try to kill Fidel Castro and that. One of the mob leaders who was involved in that alliance had a mistress who was also sleeping with President Kennedy, and so Judith Campbell, accent. Judith Campbell, who was sleeping with Sam Giancana and President Kennedy at the same time, and so Hoover was able to take all this information to a meeting with John Kennedy, and also separately to Bobby Kennedy. And while it's not clear exactly what he said, it's clear that he was—he was at least there was implied blackmail. And right after that, he uh, got the authorization from the Kennedys to wiretap Martin Luther King. A lot of people wonder whether there really is a direct connection between the two things, but I think it's fairly, in my opinion, it's a fairly conclusive that Hoover at least there was implied blackmail if there wasn't explicit blackmail, and that the Kennedys allowed uh, Hoover to do what he wanted in terms of the investigation of uh, Martin Luther King.
0: Beverly Gates, in her award-winning biography, said something to the effect, I don't remember the exact quote, that uh, maybe in the year 2026, we'll get to hear the tapes that they recorded. Have mm. you looked into that at all?
1: No, not yet. No. But I know that, you know there is some dispute among historians about uh whether you can uh what the role of the Kennedys was in the decision whether they were in favor of the wiretapping whether or not they were being blackmailed by the Hoover or not. Uh it's possible, but I do think that the the fact that Hoover took his information about Judith Campbell to Kennedy and then got the authorization to wiretap later I think is uh, seems to me to be fairly conclusive
0: might as well bring up Tom Houston yeah. <clears throat> he gets still gets attention all these years later right you write about him in the book right um, and we've had some of the hearings on our network uh, mm-hmm. with Tom Houston and the chairman uh, w- what was that all about? <laughs> And did you talk to him for this book?
1: Uh, no, I didn't. But one of the things that um, was really interesting t- was that originally Frank Church thought that the church committee was going to be like Watergate 2.0, that um, it came about a year or two after the Church, uh, the Watergate scandal, after Nixon had resigned. And Tom Houston had been caught up in Watergate. He was a White House uh, official who had been— um, uh, there were memos and documents that showed that he had tried to create this large interagency domestic spying program, uh, and it was known as the Houston Plan. And uh, it became one of the central uh, parts of the Watergate scandal. Uh, and one one thing I think that the that the Church Committee did that was an improvement on the Watergate investigation was that they showed that. Rather than being the uh, engineer and the leader of this White House, Nixon White House plot to develop an interagency joint spying program that actually Houston had been kind of a puppet of the people in the intelligence community who wanted uh, to get greater power – And to expand their – or go back to some of the earlier uh, spying programs that they'd already been doing and that they saw him as kind of a lackey who they could manipulate at the Nixon White House uh, to get what they wanted. And one of the interesting uh, things that came out in the church committee version of their investigation of the Houston plan was that as soon as J. Edgar Hoover found out about Houston, he killed the whole thing by going right to Nixon – uh and the way the reason he did that was one of the interesting uh parts of Hoover's life was towards the end of his life in the late 60s and early 70s he began to get worried um and become more cautious at the FBI because he didn't want to get caught up in a scandal at the very end of his career and so in the very end of his Uh, being director of the FBI he started to cut back on some of the more controversial things he'd been doing and he particularly um, was fighting with his intelligence director William Sullivan for control over intelligence operations and so I mean Hoover was very mercurial and sometimes he would want uh, very aggressive operations during that time and other times he didn't. In any event Sullivan, it turns out, had gone had become frustrated that Hoover was becoming very uh, cautious at the end, and he had was basically manipulating Houston to create this joint program, and Sullivan had kind of gotten the CIA and the NSA and the uh, uh, military intelligence to go along with this, and it was it was an interesting bureaucratic. Uh, game that was being played that I think the Watergate committee misunderstood and that
0: finally came out, I think, in the church committee. Houston said it in his hearing. I saw him say it. uh, He didn't write that plan. Right. Yeah, Bill
1: uh, Sullivan did. And it was uh, and the reason Hoover turned against it was that he realized this was William Sullivan's coup against him to take control of the FBI. So, it's a much more interesting story than than it had originally came out. You know, this poor Schmo Williams,
0: I mean, uh, Houston originally was one of the great villains of Watergate. Let's listen for about 30 seconds to the voice of Frank Church.
1: We have a particular obligation to examine the NSA in light of its tremendous potential for abuse. It has the capacity to monitor the private conversations of American citizens without the use of a bug or a tap. The interception of international communication signals sent through the air is the job of NSA, and thanks to modern technological developments, it does its job very well. The danger lies in the ability of the NSA to turn its awesome technology against domestic communication.
0: I will um, go to it in a second, but first, uh, you describe frank church in the book as a bit of an opportunist and you use words like arrogant and uh Mm -hmm. and others but you you describe what you found out about him. and did you ever know him
1: no i didn't know him he died in 1984 uh, of cancer um but uh yeah he was he was a complicated man i as i said i think he was basically honest and had real integrity but he was also deeply ambitious uh politically uh and he was, uh, he, he, he was not well-liked by a lot, of, a lot of other senators uh, because they thought that he was um, a publicity hound and a, a kind of pretentious blowhard. And you can hear in his voice he is a, he's got this precise way of speaking that uh, turned off a lot of people. But that was something that, that precise diction came uh, – it was very practiced – since he was a teenager and so he had he had worked on his way of speaking in a way that came across i don't think he ever realized how studied it sounded uh and that hurt him uh in terms of the other people in the senate and so he was also uh could make uh decisions in private with other senators where he would turn you know uh You know, kind of disavow earlier agreements that he had with other senators. And so some other senators didn't always trust him. Um, But I think he was. uh, And so he had he had spent most of his time in the Senate. He he never had until 1975. He never was the chairman of a major committee. uh, And he'd been in the Senate since 1957. So it was he was a little bit of an outsider but i also think that that outside that those were his flaws and his his ambition was fueled in part by his wife bethine who was an incredibly power, powerful figure in his life uh and she was the daughter of a governor of idaho and she wanted him to be president uh you said she had a temper yeah she had a, a real temper and uh she kind of uh in some ways, kind of micromanaged his Senate office, um, but I think with all that, I think his just with all those flaws, I think he was deeply uh, committed to uh, trying to change America for. In he he
0: was really beginning to fear that we were becoming a militaristic empire. I don't know whether should I, I should ask you to, to tell. Him us what the NSA is mm-hmm. first, or for you to tell us what your relationship over the years has been with the NSA. <laughs> it's not been a good one. <laughs> what uh, happened? Give us a brief version of what <coughs> to you back in the middle 2000s.
1: Yeah, I, I, was, uh, I covered the intelligence community for the New York Times and uh, in um, well, in 2004, i found out about well 2004 i found out about um uh how the nsa under bush had started a domestic spying program basically uh, was spying on americans without anybody knowing about it and had it was uh, illegal program and uh I worked on it with Eric Lichblau, another reporter at the New York Times, and we had the story ready to go at the uh, in 2004. But the White House and the CIA and the NSA put a lot of pressure on the New
0: York Times to kill our story, and um, and you weren't included in the meetings with Phil Todman, who was the bureau chief, and Bill Keller, who was the executive editor, when they met at the White House. Why not? Uh, they didn't
1: want me there <laughs> uh well i was uh i went to one or two meetings actually uh at the beginning of the process we had a whole year of meetings uh and then what happened was they kept there was so much pressure not to run the story uh over the ne- next year that i decided to put it in a book uh that i was going to publish
0: the book was called
1: uh, it was called state of war which came out in 2006 and then, when the book was finished, and it was uh, a few months before it was published, I told the New York Times it was going to be in my book, and that they should publish the story. And they did not take kindly to that. They did, they,
0: t- did they? By the way, did you leave on your own accord, or did they fire you?
1: No, I left on my
0: own. Would they have left, let you stay there, even though that book was coming out? Oh, at
1: the time, well, this is this is two thousand five. Uh, they were very angry with me. And I thought I was going to be fired.
0: How did Uh, you know? How did you see the anger?
1: They told me they were mad. (laughs) They were. We had a whole series of private
0: meetings. Why would a journalistic institution be mad that you were publishing something that uh, had had relevance to uh, that period?
1: Because they had decided, they had decided that they agreed with the White House and the CIA and the NSA that it was. uh, would harm national security, and uh, they felt that I should abide by that desi- by their decision. The editor's uh, let decision. Let me just stop for a
0: second. The, the CIA told us that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Right. And and it, it just seems like it. Our heads are full of these confusing things that have happened in history. Yeah. I mean, if they were so worried about you publishing this in this case, how could that have any more damage than the trillion, two trillion dollars we spent in Iraq because of weapons of mass destruction? Yeah,
1: well, that was one of the arguments that I made. You know, I think I, I, I told them, I mean, this was not the first time that I had had stories killed. I'd had other stories killed. And I had begun to believe that at that time, I believe that the Bush White House and the CIA were lying about the uh, potential damage, and that it, their their arguments weren't credible. But the editors believed the uh, believed those arguments.
0: And how, how close did you come to going to prison? Uh,
1: well, that was after this. I was subpoenaed uh, in a leak investigation into one one, one of my stories, and um, they uh, subpoenaed me in said that if I didn't testify and reveal my sources that I would have to go to prison and uh I got lawyers who uh who fought that off for seven or eight years uh went to the case went to the Supreme Court and um it was really only in 2015 I I got subpoenaed in 2008 for the first time and then the case continued until 2015 and they finally dropped it
0: Why did they drop it?
1: Well, they had won in all the legal – in the courts and they were ready to uh, force me to testify. But then the publicity, I think, got so bad on them that uh, putting a New York Times reporter in jail that I think they – Eric Holder, the attorney general at the time, uh, I think backed down because of bad publicity.
0: Were you surprised that the Obama administration kept up the pressure on you?
1: Yeah, yeah, because the case had started in the Bush administration and then continued. I thought that when Obama came in, they were going to drop this leak investigation, but they didn't. In fact, they doubled down and were more aggressive.
0: As I read earlier, there's something like thirty. No, let's see what's the number: thirty-two thousand people that work at NSA. Where is it located? What does it do? <laughs> the NSA
1: is headquartered at Fort Meade in Maryland, uh, right outside Washington. And it is uh primarily does code breaking and uh, code making uh you know the old fashioned What's that mean they uh cryptology they break uh the codes of other countries they also help secure American communications so that they can't be broken and then in the modern era they do a lot of other things with uh, uh trying to you know prevent uh Hacks of government, you know, computers. I mean, it, it's become much more sophisticated. But it would—it started as, you know, the uh, communications interception uh, organization. It would uh, intercept foreign communications and then break the codes, so that Americans, uh, that the U.S. government could read the the uh, secret messages of foreign governments.
0: But you say they were listening to Americans. Right.
1: Yeah, they weren't supposed to. They were supposed to focus on uh, foreign uh, communications. And the reason what we wrote was such a, uh, a big story was that they were secretly doing um, spying on Americans um, after 9-11. You know, what we found was the – The code name was a program called Stellar Wind, which was this big domestic spying program. And it's the same thing that um, Edward Snowden later provided leaked documents about. It was the same program that just had grown by the time Snowden's documents came out. Did you ever have
0: any doubts with all the criticism that you were getting from the government uh, and probably Congress at the time that you were wrong?
1: No. No. I knew that— because the i knew the people inside the government who told me about this about the NSA spying uh, were frightened by it and they were upset about it they thought it was unconstitutional and so i knew that if the people who were familiar with the program inside the government thought it was a bad idea then i didn't see why the
0: american people shouldn't be told about it what's the difference between what the nsa does do they still do this? I mean, do they? Do you think they stopped the listening to the American
1: people? No, I think I think the I think the the sad one of the sad things. You know, as a reporter, you uh, you always hope. You know, you always wonder what is the impact of what you're going to do. <laughs> and I think the the disclosures of the NSA domestic spying program that we made and that later came out uh, in that with the documents from Snowden and the same program we still have massive uh, a- after all that we still have massive uh, domestic spying but it's been uh, legitimized by congress which has kind of gone along you know there have been some limits on it but for the most part it's uh, it's been legitimized by
0: congress after um because it's they it's been sold as part of the war on terror what's the difference uh, between the NSA listening and Uh, What I've been hearing a lot lately from people who have, uh, in this particular case, Apple products, Mm -hmm. they would be talking among themselves and they didn't have their phones out. And uh, they would I had a friend just tell me they were talking about taking a trip uh, to, let's just say, Chicago. And a couple of minutes later, all of a sudden pops up on. Their iPad uh, information on how to go to Chicago. Uh, yeah, I mean, you hear it all the time yeah, from people. Right. What's the difference? I mean, that seems like that's yeah, it's it's
1: it is, and it's very dangerous, and it, it it's a huge problem in our society that hasn't been uh, dealt with adequately by uh, the laws that we have, and it's uh, the privacy concerns of big tech are enormous, and the it's like the loopholes are big enough to drive trucks through. And one of the dangerous things is that um, the NSA legally can uh, do certain kinds of uh, monitoring of communications of phones and private communications, but what they can also do is buy private da- buy data from private cor- corporations and uh, to marry it up with their uh, listening in on uh, phones and
0: uh, email and um, so the Chinese steal our data off of uh, TikTok, and the right. American manufacturers steal the data off of the system that they built, right. and our government steals the data yeah. from us. So right. we just—I guess—we just walk around knowing that every step we make, people know about. Well, we shouldn't have to feel that way, but that's here is F.A.O. Swartz Jr. Fritz Swartz, who is counsel to uh, Senator. Uh, Frank Church, and this is just what he sounded like back in 1975. Uh, The Bureau went so far as to mail anonymous letters to Dr. King and his wife, which were mailed shortly before he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, and finishes with this suggestion. King, there is only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You have just 34 days in which to do it. This exact number has been selected for a specific reason. It has definite practical significance. It was 34 days before the award. You are done. That was taken by Dr. King to mean a suggestion for suicide, was it not? That's our understanding, Senator. That was Senator Mondale that uh, right. injected uh, into that, that conversation. What, the one thing I noticed that was significantly different than we get now or most hearings Mr. Schwartz asked a lot of questions for the committee. How did that work, and what role did he play in the final decision? Uh,
1: Frank Church, right before the public hearings started, told Schwartz that he wanted him to lead the questioning that he, uh, in in a lot of—to uh, in, in to some degree, and that um, he, he said, I think— I'll, other senators don't ask very good questions because they don't know as much as the staff. And so I thought it was... A, a, a. Schwartz was really stunned by that, and he took the lead on many of the public hearings. And I think it made the hearings much better because the staff played a central role in questioning and following up with witnesses, and it made the the questioning much more focused. And it's it was interesting because... As I said, Church was always uh, criticized by other senators for being this publicity hound. But at the key moment in his career, he actually uh, gave Schwartz uh, the limelight that he could have had because he knew that it was important for the committee to have a focused questioning of public
0: witnesses. You say in your book basically that the Rockefeller Commission didn't amount to anything. Mm -hmm. I may be... (laughs) Sure. <laughs> going, going too far. The Pike Committee never published what they found, right? So, what did the Church Committee find, and then what what happened after that? Were there any laws passed?
1: Yeah, uh, they, as I said, this is the first investigation ever of the CIA and the FBI and the NSA, at, you know, after 30 years of uh, the CIA's existence, and so they had to decide what were, what are we going to focus on. And um, they were in the process of trying to figure out in January uh, 1975 what they were going to focus on when uh, Jerry Ford, who was the president, met with the New York Times editors who had just published Cy Hirsch's story and had a private meeting. It was a very funny episode where uh, Abe Rosenthal asked him, uh, you know, it was talking to him, and and Ford said, "I want." There's a lot of secrets out there that you guys shouldn't find out about, and we shouldn't have Congress rummaging around in all these secrets. And Rosenthal said, "Like what?" And he said, "Like assassinations." And he said, "But that's off the record." And the New York Times editors were stunned, and they went back to the New York Times and they said, "Ford just said that the CIA is assassinating people." But he said it's off the record, so we can't do anything with it. And Tom Wicker, who was at the meeting, who was an editor and a columnist, said, "Oh, well, we 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 can't just sit on this." So he went to see Cy Hirsch, who was not invited to the meeting, uh, and told him, you know, Rosen, you know, what Ford had said, and that Rosenthal had said it was off the record.
0: And Hirsch, at that time, worked for the New York Times. Yeah,
1: he was in the Washington bureau, and so. He he confirmed the story, made a few phone calls, and then he went to see Daniel Shore, his uh, friend at CBS, and he told he leaked everything to Shore. And so CBS broke a big story about the CIAs involved in assassinations. And when Church saw that story, he said, "Well, that's what we got to focus on. We'll focus on the CIA's assassination plots. And it turned out they, they did, that was the main focus for the first few months of the church committee was the CIA's efforts to kill Fidel Castro and several other foreign leaders around the world. Uh, and um, the key investigation was of this what they found was the CIA's alliance with the mafia to in their late 50s and early
0: 60s to kill Fidel Castro. Why would the New York Times publish that story and wouldn't publish your story? Uh, well, they didn't. I
1: mean, they gave it to the CBS, but uh, that's well, a good it, question. That's a good question. I mean, I think the New York Times is a very uh, uh, is a very hierarchical organization, always has been. So it's, you know, they they don't like rebels like Cy Hirsch or <laughs> me, I guess.
0: Cy Hirsch came out with a report. Um, I don't know what the date was on it. That basically, from his perspective, it totally upended the theory of how Osama bin Laden was killed. Yeah. Um, do you did you did you see that story? And have, do, do you generally think he's on the right track when he publishes some of his stuff? He's been controversial.
1: Yeah. Well, I think uh, you know he's been doing this since the nineteen sixties. Uh, his first big scoop was Milai. Uh, in Vietnam, the you know the war crimes in um, in Vietnam, and then I think, frankly, I think his domestic spying story uh, in December 1974 that led to the Church Committee was his best story ever. Uh, um, but you know, he's uh, as I, he's very controversial today. I haven't really tried to uh, look into his uh, reporting on those in any detail. I know that they're controversial
0: though. The book is called The Last Honest Man. It's all about Frank Church, Senator Frank Church of Idaho. The subtitle is The CIA, the FBI, the Mafia and the Kennedys and One Senator's Fight to Save Democracy. Our guest is former New York Times reporter, current Intercept reporter and book author James Rison. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.